0: Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's gonna turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Okay, so, mm. are we headed for a war? A war with whom? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the the, the sense I'm getting, I, I I feel like this has just come up a bunch of times with my friends, or just like, I've seen it creeping into headlines and stuff. Like, there's tension building between political parties, between groups of people, between, I don't know if there's like, I don't know where how a war starts or or where it would start, what what that would even look like right now in this moment. Because I mean, even I was trying to to, to figure out a little bit about World War One because I knew that you had, you know quite a bit about World War One. I. I was just trying to watch a video earlier today about it, just like outlining because I was like, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> no, <not> but sure. <laughs> I, when I was I was watching this video and it was talking about like just how drastically the French were caught off guard by the Germans' military strategy. And it was just like, you know, they were expecting to go out and just line up with muskets and and, and go into the fields and, and and walk forward. And then it was suddenly like, oh, these people are like, they're not they're not wearing bright colors, they're wearing darker colors and they're just mowing us down. Like this this isn't what we were expecting. Right. And like war can look so different depending on where you are technologically. Like you you might have a kind of a romantic view of what it's going to look like or what's going to happen. And then suddenly, you know, when, when the rubber meets the road, what, what, so what would it look like right now? I mean, I, a a lot of question,
1: I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the saying in, in military history circles is that we often fight the previous war. So, Mm -hmm. you know, after world war one, for example, uh, in the early 1930s, the French, uh, create a whole system of defenses that a lot of people know about, but they don't really know the background to something called the Maginot line. And uh, that's because they thought it was going to be, you know, uh, a trench uh, trench warfare, just like the first world war was. And World War II ends up being more of a war of movement. So... Uh, so what
0: would, what is, is that a technical phrase, a war of movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, m- most wars tend to be a little bit more movement than than the first world war was. I mean... Uh, the unu- unique set of circumstances that kind of lead to the stalemate on the Western Front in World War One are—they're just that. They're unique, really, in in many respects. I mean, you have two equal and opposite forces I mean, just... that kind of lock, and um, you know nobody wanted it to be a war of attrition like that, uh, but it became one. Even the Eastern Front in that same war was different. I mean, um, there was more movement you know, in, in the Russian campaign than there was on the Western Front. The very beginning of the war, there was fluidity, and then at the end, of course, in 1918, the Germans looked like they might win. They ran out of steam, and then the Allies kind of rolled them back. And in, in a strange twist... The war begins and ends in the same place. Actually, the 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 same town is the scene of the first and the last engagement of the First World War. That's kind of poetic. Four years for nothing, you know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that so so that's um, that's that idea. And even in the First World War, you know, the French had this idea of um, their theorists had an idea called you know that elan was going to be the key factor. So your your passion for your cause. And you know, if you go back to things like the French Revolution, that proved to be true. Uh, the the revolutionary armies defeated armies they shouldn't have on paper, uh, but in for, in the because first because
0: because of their like passion for their Partly, ideals.
1: Yeah, they, they you know they really felt that they were spreading uh, freedom to the rest of Europe. Right? I mean, they had they had uh, created a republic. And uh, the crowned heads of Europe were were deathly afraid of this, and right. uh, so it kind of contributed to their the passion with which they fought. Right? If you have an army that's not really into it, um, that's that's going to be a problem.
0: Yeah. So, oh, that's an interesting concept because I mean, like I'm thinking about our current moment, and I, I think despite sort of a um, there's almost a pretense of like anti-religiousness in in a lot of like the way the way we're approaching politics, we're kind of pretending that we're all just following the science or whatever but people are still following their values and following what they think is right and following what what they want to do intuitively and, and axiomatically and there I don't know when I when I look at sort of the the narratives that are being driven by by both sides of you know the political spectrum right now there's very much a sense of of morality or of like of like 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 a passion for like, those guys are the evil ones and we actually need to take care of them and we need to rid this evil thing. Like I, I see conservative magazines talking about like Antifa and just kind of painting the entire left as like this this hate-filled group that just wants to destroy civilization, wants to destroy the government or, or not even destroy the government. That they want to use the government to destroy everyone's freedom or something like that. And then I, I see similarly, I, I, I particularly like this news app um, I think it's called ground news, but it kind of just collects a whole bunch of different news articles from different different political alliances. And um it's just interesting seeing kind of the parallelism because I, I think on the same side I'm seeing like, you know, leftist uh leftist papers or leftist news magazines kind of similarly doing that to the right and looking at and seeing like look at look everybody's all right alt right. Yeah everybody's you know, kind of violently wanting to I mean even looking at a situation like what happened on the the sixth of sixth of January, I think, right, mm-hmm. where like you know, there's a lot of people there with a lot of different intentions to do a lot of different things, and and you know, I, I see the right painting that as like, well, look, that's not us; that's some some crazy bunch of people, and I see the left pointing and saying, look, at the, look, at the look what the right did. Look, the the right's ready to violently attack and destroy us all. Yeah, and it's like, is is that? I don't know is that one of the the prerequisites for a war is that is that, is that yeah. how, how do we don't how do we not get there anyways Well uh,
1: yeah again another excellent question I I think to go back to your original question about is there going to be a war I think you're right I mean I think you've identified a key problem is that when we no longer see uh, other people as uh, fully orbed human beings you know w- with nuance and you know, when we see, when we speak in terms of monoliths, and we and we we characterize the other side as as the enemy or evil, I think then we're part of the way down the road to more easily engaging in warfare. Right? It's it's hard to kill someone when you think of them as yeah, like as yourself, person, yeah. yeah, as a as a person, right? If you think of them as vermin or or as evildoers, um, you know that it's much easier to to do that. And it's interesting you say that. I mean. Um, you know reflecting now it's with the benefit of hindsight of course but there were a lot of people who reflected after the first world war and said you know somewhere around i think it was virginia wolf who said somewhere around 1910 there was just something that happened where people became uh, much less accepting of other viewpoints much less tolerant more provocative i mean uh, yeah now what ha- i mean i don't think there's any special reason necessarily that 1910 was the you know the the date that she picked uh, but there was a Canadian uh, historian named Modris Ecksteins who wrote a book that I always liked uh, called uh, "Rites of Spring," and he talks about in 1913 there was a, a performance of a, um, of Stravinsky's "Rites of Spring." Oh,
0: right, i have and, heard of
1: this. And uh, Diaghilev and his ballet people came to Paris, and they deliberately um, kind of um, uh, flouted all the traditions of ballet. And so they they did this performance with the Stravinsky music, which itself was provocative, and there was a riot. There was actually a riot. (laughs) So, you know, for us today, well, no, not for us today, maybe us 10 years ago or five years ago, we'd say, you know, what's going on there? But it seems that everything today from wearing a mask to what kind of art you like to, you know, everything becomes a high stakes game that, uh, you know, you're all or nothing, you're with us or you're against us. So I think there is a parallel to be drawn.
0: Yeah. But so why are we getting there? Is it like, I mean, I guess part of my intuition is that like, then being a Christian and looking at things, is like, okay, obviously the idea of right and wrong and, and even, you know, ideas like heaven and hell it's like there, there, there's deeply religious images that, that that help me to kind of orient myself and like it's it's right on, you know it's right on my sleeve like I'm I, I think that there's a good place that we can go and there's a bad place that we can go and I'm not saying that like I don't want to impose my opinion on you I, I do want to impose my opinion on the world to some extent I, I want to talk to people and listen to people but I also want to go to a better place and I you know to some extent I have a little bit of a vision of where that might be right but like it, if if we kind of, you know, if we reject all types of religion, which I mean, that's kind of how I'm viewing religion is is something to to orient you towards what you where you want to go and where where you want to go away from, mm-hmm. right? A, a sense of morality. If we if we just kind of pretend we don't have one of those, a, another one sneaks up under the guise of, of of something else. It's just like religion is still here, but it's wearing a mask. You know?
1: Yeah. No, I, I think uh, I understand what you're saying. Um, I tend to use the phrase fundamentalism, um, that there, there are fundamentalisms of all different stripes. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that there are some people who are atheists and are very strong atheists and are very convinced atheists and uh, very intolerant atheists, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a kind of uh, rigidity of thought and, and this kind of binary Right, you're either good or evil. So, in their case, the evil people would be people like yourself and myself, who uh, you know consider themselves Christians because we've been duped by superstition and we we don't use our brains and that kind of thing. So, I'm really interested in the people that um, that can maintain an integrity and and hold to a set of beliefs, but are also able to work with other people to try yeah. and build bridges across those divides. Um, so it's really interesting. I was just saying to my wife um, this morning, actually, um, I find that I'm drawn to someone that um, I studied a long time ago. I mean, my, my doctoral thesis was on pacifism between the world wars. And mm. there was a French pacifist by the name of Marc Sonnier who was um, what they call a social Catholic. So he was a Catholic, but he he was pretty left-leaning in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And he started a youth movement in the... Um, in the 1890s called Le Sion, the, the furrow it meant. And it was in response to a papal encyclical that was really progressive and trying to look at some of the social issues and why working-class people were moving away from the church. In the end, his movement uh, was censured by Rome. They thought they were getting too uh, too radical. And uh, I remember um, in his autobiography, there's a, there's a uh, a section where, you know, that news comes down from Rome that they, they're going to have to put the movement under uh, ecclesiastical control. And he comes in and, and he says to all his uh, co-workers, he says, okay, everyone on your knees, we're going to pray. And and that to him, you know, in the end, he was a faithful Catholic. And so he he did what they wanted him to do. But what really strikes me about Sonia is he would work with anyone. Uh, he worked with, you know, uh, yeah. left wing politicians who were not believers. And, um, you know, even though they didn't necessarily buy uh, his belief in a higher power, they realized that he was someone who was with them on certain social issues. Like, for example, you know, the conditions for bakers in, in, in Paris were terrible, right? These are the people that would be up at you know, two, three in the morning to make the bread so that someone getting up at six o'clock would have fresh bread, right? And and Sonia was one of the first people to to say, look, we need to do something about the working conditions of these people. They're not paid enough. The working conditions are terrible, et cetera, et cetera. He was for cooperatives, all these kinds of things. Um, So he earned the respect of people, you know, even if it was grudging respect in some cases, it was respect. And I think mm. that we've lost that sense of um, building coalitions, you know, yeah. Um, well, do you think
0: like, I I've been kind of I don't know. I I've, I've even had some hard conversations recently about I don't know, just trying to reconnect with some some different friends and and seeing things very differently and there was there was a, you know, somebody got hurt or somebody got offended and trying to to get past trying to talk somebody else's language. I mean, even when we're speaking English is like a really difficult thing. Like there's so much, like you have to be so, pay so much attention and try to figure out which, which word are we misreading each other on? Where where is this like, where's this confusion happening? Because it's like, it, it, I think, I'm not sure if it takes a particular kind of person to do that, or maybe we can all learn how to do that. But like, we're certainly, we're not very good at that right now.
1: No, I agree. Um, and I mean, I I had a situation like that too. I have a a friend that uh, I've known since grade seven, um, and uh, you know, he grew up in a Christian family, and uh, over time, um, uh, his faith you know faded away. It's just something that he didn't uh, see as as uh, as valid. And um, we're you know we're we're able to talk on a number of issues like kind of social or cultural things. You know, we're, there's no problem, but when it comes to faith, it's a it's a bone of contention. And uh, about two three years ago, we we tried to have a kind of conversation. You know, where um, it was even funny the way he approached it a little bit. He he said, "I want to know why you believe." And you know, it was like I was this kind of interesting okay. experiment. So I got my back up a little bit, but we we ended up coming to grief on the idea of um, you know, person of faith. And and he he said, "Well, I'm a person of faith too." And he defined it in a particular way that I found a little idiosyncratic. And, and because I, you know, I kind of, I, I balked at accepting that definition, then really the conversation, you know, stopped there. And that, and, sorry, that was pretty much, I think, largely my fault. You know, I, I had trouble with that definition and I wasn't able to kind of just say, okay, right. let's put that aside for a second. Yeah. We'd had some really productive conversations up until that point. Uh, right. But sometimes you're right, you know, there, there might be a particular term or a reading of a particular event that is just, you know, the, the distance is really hard to bridge. I guess maybe the way to, to, to kind of work around those is to try and maybe put that thing aside momentarily and try and then kind of keep, keep the conversation flowing and then come back to that, Yeah, you know, and, and maybe on that point there won't be agreement. Yeah. Um, and, and there may be a way to disagree, you know, politely, or at least respectfully, I, I guess. And, and unfortunately, we haven't kind of gone back there, but, uh, you know, I mean, I have hope that, um, that 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 can happen. Yeah, you know, we're still friends, and we we still agree on a lot of things. But on certain issues, it's just it's tough.
0: <laughs> I had a friend recommend me um, a little while ago the book How to Read a Book, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which I think is like uh, a lot of. I don't know. I mentioned that to Ken and he said that a lot of literature professors and stuff kind of referenced that or they'll teach out of it a little bit. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, maybe that was a good recommendation. I ended up reading through it and it was it was really interesting and really gave me a, a good lens for kind of thinking about how I organize information as I kind of try to engage with a book. But like part of the, what it made me do is like think about I'm engaging with the person and their, their ideas and this whole branching set of ideas and how they're connected. And one of the one of the key things it teaches you to do when, when trying to understand a book is, like, at the beginning, pay attention because usually authors will... Especially, like, in fiction, I guess they'll probably do this a little bit too, but um, especially in, like, didactic books, it's, it's gonna... They're gonna lay out some terms, and you have to come to terms with the author. Mm. And obviously, when you're reading a book, you don't get to discuss the terms with them. You don't get to, like... Yeah you don't mutually agree on terms. You have to just listen and see, okay, this is what they mean when they're using this word. Yeah. And then like, for the whole rest of reading that book, you don't get to just get mad at them for using that word that way. It's like, well, (laughs) they already told you what they mean by that. It's been established, right? right? Yeah. And like, I I don't know how, like how much do you need to, I don't like, in that conversation, can you get past just like say okay that's what you mean by this word so can we, can we move on past there or like it's hard because you're both going to describe each other or describe things with a certain word and if you're not on the same page about it you
1: gotta... yeah i mean um i guess it depends how central the term that is the flashpoint is right i mean um if it's peripheral then it's fairly easily disposed of yeah or but just if it's, but just but if it's a central. Different word. yeah and if if it's central then it becomes more difficult I mean, you know, our, our, we're still friends, so, I mean, that that says something. Um, but, yeah, it, it is hard to have those conversations sometimes. And, you know, um, also on both sides, right? I mean, if it's a really open and frank conversation, you know, I might be challenging your views, you might be challenging mine. And, and in both cases, you know, the, you're posing questions that actually mm-hmm. cause the other person to to really examine their, their assumptions, you know, and that can be uncomfortable. And I think um, one of the things we, we, you know, talking about the world we live in today, I think people are not comfortable examining their own assumptions and, and, yeah. you know, and, and possibly saying, you know what, I'm a little weak on this point. And uh, I think it sounds yeah. like from the conversations that we've had, you know, previously that you're really open to that. And I think that that's a, I think that's a prerequisite to having really deep conversations and, and actually you know, going a little further is saying, right. Hey, you know, I'm willing to, under, uh, to accept the fact that I may be a bit weak in this yeah. point or, you know, whatever it, it like,
0: is. I, I think that's a, like, probably, I don't know, like I'm, I'm trying to figure it out because I, I, I recognize to some extent, I'm kind of a not ordinary when it comes to that. And it's not like due to, you know, some, you know, education or something that I happen to have, or like, it's, it's just like, some people's personalities, they have more of a threshold for like, for disagreement. Like I like talking to people I disagree with. Right. But that's not like, not everybody likes to do that. Is, yeah. is, it, is it just like, does everybody just need to be more like me? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure out how much, well, I mean, you said, you said like there's a problem with fundamentalism. I'm not sure if it actually, like, I, I think there's probably a lot of people out there that, it's not you know it's not their not their temperament not their personality type or whatever to be out in the in the trenches all the time thinking about about the trench warfare i don't know it's in my head <laughs> but like it's not everybody, not everybody can take that much war in a com- in a conversational it's like right. pe- people like and I, I don't feel like i even should expect that of everybody but i have to i'm trying to figure out how to work through it anyways like i i think tribalism Though it, it it can lead to some bad things it's like it's it's almost necessary i i don't know i'm I'm trying to figure it out because like you, you need to have a community that you can it can exist in and you, and you don't have to constantly be reestablishing terms and right. and wondering whether or not you're on the same side you need to have a sense of comfort of like I'm aligned with these people and they know me and we're speaking the same language right. and, and whatnot
1: um something you might want to look at i mean there they're um what you just said kind of uh, jogged my memory. There's, um, there's a writer named Benjamin Barber, and he wrote an article, oh, was it in the Atlantic or the New York or something like that, and then later expanded it into a book. I mean, it's not the most, um, you know, it's not the deepest, most rigorous piece of, of academic work, but, but the article is really interesting. I think he's on to something, and it's called um, Jihad versus McWorld. And it compares this idea of of the tribalism that you've talked about uh, versus a kind of cosmopolitanism. And he talks about the pros and cons of both approaches, right? Um, As you just said, tribalism, you know, it gives a strong sense of belonging, right? But it does tend to lead to a kind of demonization uh, of the other, right? Right. And uh, McWorld you know, uh, you kind of regress to the the mean and you get like, you remember when you mixed all the paints as a kid in kindergarten and right. you got this, you're like, how did all these beautiful colors end Become up with nothing. this kind of yeah. grayish, brownish? That's a great, great analogy. Yeah, there. so um, he talks about that and, and he, he he you know, he he gives both the, the pluses and the minuses of these right. two approaches. And uh, I, I found that it was a, a reading that the students could, could grasp fairly easily mm. and it led to some interesting conversations. Did,
0: did he, like- did he come to any conclusion like it, it seems obvious like that yeah you, you don't want to mix all the colors together but you also don't want to like keep all the colors separate you paint a picture that's just blue and it's not a picture you exactly. paint a color, color that's just all the colors and it there's yeah. there's no it becomes nothing again
1: yeah he he suggested that the greater danger was a kind of tribalism um because mm-hmm. he felt that some of the issues that were facing humanity and are still facing humanity are are um you know, by their very definition, they 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 are beyond tribes, right? I mean, things like climate change, right? It doesn't matter matter whether you live in Russia or uh, in Argentina or Japan. Uh, you know, this is a global issue. Um, you know, the the idea of uh, people wanting peace. You know, that's another thing that transcends. I mean, all of you know. Apparently, humans want peace, mm-hmm. but we seem to do a terrible job of of attaining it.
0: Well, I mean that. Peace is like, that's an easy kind of touch point to like say, you know, everybody wants world peace. But I mean, I, I guess, I, I think probably everybody just doesn't want bloody warfare. <laughs> I, I think like, I, I, I don't want peace even right now. I don't want peace between my brother and me. I want to I wanna be able to, to disagree and like, and to push each other on things. Mm-hmm. I, I don't actually want us to just be, you know, not having a sense. Like, I, I think that's even sort of the, the part of, the point of a conversation or the point of, of interacting with people, the point of listening is that there's you, you want to find a point of contention and, and, and see if you can work past it, see if you can you can make some progress. like progress is something that that's like that in, involves there being something that's not as good and something that's better and and you right. have to it's like if two people have two different opinions on, on, on a subject, you know they got to go to war on them. It, it's just that, obviously, the word war, that's like a, a violent word. But
1: I mean, <laughs> it's okay. The, the, the war has given us all kinds of analogies. I mean, the First World War alone, you think of things like no man's land. Right, You know, so yeah. You're in an entrenched position. Uh, yeah, right. there, you know, the, the F word w- was popularized during the First World War. I didn't it's, know that. That's yeah, there's all kinds of, actually, uh, um, uh, chatting. Look the word, that up, Evan. <laughs> the, the word chat is another one. Uh, really? The, uh, the uh, the East Indian soldiers, the colonial uh, soldiers, they would see the the uh, the Brits, you know, t- having a cup of tea together, and and they were delousing each other, and the word for louse in in Hindi is no is chat, <laughs> and so that's where yeah, it's all these interesting little things, you know, the First World War has contributed an awful lot to our uh, vocabulary, but no, I mean, I think it may be that you and I disagree a little bit on on that. I mean, um, I think that the you know. Maybe I misheard you, but the way that you were um, kind of characterizing progress was that um, it made it sound very competitive in the sense that there's, there's a winner and a loser, right? And I think that's part of the problem. If, if you can have a truly open conversation um, and, and maybe disagree, of course, but if there's no sense of somebody being a winner and someone being a loser, but rather you, you work to a point where people say, oh yeah, you know, actually you were more right on that than I was. I can see, I can see these points. If it becomes a kind of uh, all or nothing kind of situation, right. if, then if, people. If, everything,
0: if the stakes are everything. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that, and I think, you know, I, I've heard this quote a couple of times that I've been thinking about it it's just like, yeah, that's the, the idea is that you don't want to identify too much with your ideas because they're not you. You're, you're something that can become a lot of ideas and can house a lot of ideas and um you know what's the quote the you're the reason you have words or the reason you have ideas is so that way they can die instead of you
1: yeah yeah i mean you know um i think the people who are really successful leaders are people that are able to shed ideas if they're not working it, or if they you know growth right is is part of the equation too so i think that accords with what you just said i mean um Something that worked 20 years ago quite well might not be, you know, might not work anymore for whatever reasons. It, it might be just a gradual evolution or there might have been some kind of watershed moment that just changed the game completely, right? I think we're seeing that in, in the United States, for example, right? I mean, uh, whatever you think of Donald Trump, uh, I think it would be foolish to discount him, even though he's out of the Oval Office. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, th- there are a lot of people who really see, Him as a good leader, so I think we need to ask that that question. Why, what, why? Why, What is it that they see?
0: Like, what do you mean by a good leader? If that's that's a good leader, right?
1: Well, I mean, uh, he's speaking their language at at the very least. So there's that terms thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, sometimes we dismiss a phenomenon because we don't like the most um, visible head of that movement, or you know, we don't agree with them, or we we think you know they think that there's something wrong with that person, but. If, if they have a lot of popular support, we need to kind of come to terms with that and say, okay, why is this the case? There are reasons why this is resonating with people. Yeah, uh, I, I think of, you know, um, it's a good example, I think, of, of somebody, uh, I used to love watching Tony Bourdain, uh, Parts Unknown. Do you know, he, he he's a... He, he's a chef. He okay. started off as a chef and he, he gradually, he was doing cooking shows and then he was doing kind of travel shows with cooking oh, and okay. culture. And yeah, yeah, yeah. he ended up, uh, his show was on CNN. Yeah. And um, it was a fascinating show because he would always kind of get deeper into the culture that mm. where he was going. You know, uh, he might be in Colombia or in Peru or in uh, uh, Morocco, whatever it was. And one of the last episodes that he did, uh, I think it was the last season before he died, committed suicide actually, um, was um, uh, he was talking about, I think he was in Virginia, and he was talking about people who voted for Trump. And he was not a Trumper at all. And he, he his take on the whole thing was really interesting. He 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 refused to kind of make them... Uh, out to be what liberals probably wanted him, him, them to to be, you know what I mean. He he didn't hmm. kind of play the caricature. He said yeah. these are people who have been ignored for a long time yeah. by leaders in you know on both sides. Yeah, and uh, you know Trump seemed to be speaking their language right. and and dealing with their issues, and that's why they flocked to him. Yeah. So I, I think that's a more constructive way to say you know why are these people feeling right. so why alienated in the way that you
0: are, and
1: I, I think there's good yeah. reason. I mean I think globalization. Yeah. Has been good for certain people and terrible for a lot of other people. Way more people ha- have suffered mm. under globalization. Um, but you know, it's one of those those things. Do we throw out the baby with the bathwater?
0: Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's like hey, can can we get around that? Do we do we have to throw out the bathwater or the baby? Or like. Uh, <laughs> I mean that, that's a good analogy for yeah. You, you, it's it's very easy to like look at at your opponent or or look at somebody else's position who's seeing something mm-hmm. from a different perspective and just see something wrong with it and say let's get rid of that whole thing because I see something wrong with it. Yeah. And like I mean, you were talking about you know it's uh, Anthony Bourdain looking and and at, at, at seeing the seeing past the kind of the. The little icon version of of what a uh, a Trump supporter is it's it's a little easier for me to do that because like that's my family that's my that's my immediate um, peers a lot of them even even if even a lot of my I mean the young adults who are like my my closest peers it's like their families have the same positions like my dad super like loves Trump loves to talk about all the all the great things that he that he did and that he was doing and 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 like I mean. I can I can tap into that easier but then it's like the exercise for me is then you know I'm surrounded all the time by people who within their kind of their framework of, of progress versus you know heading towards something bad or, or their their framework of heaven and hell is like the the evil guys are the liberals and it's like I, I have to spend more time working on getting into you know wh- why don't I see the value in that in that liberal position I, I guess, this, this is something that I can imagine you would probably you've had to wrestle with and you're probably pretty good at because you you you're working in a university which largely the I get the impression that there's not a lot of conservatives there's not a lot of or a lot of religious people in in, in university campuses especially professors uh, how I mean how are you make working on that translation problem like
1: mm. yeah it's a great question um I mean, I think it's, it's, um, it's a work in progress. Um, I think, uh, particularly during the last four years, I think it was easier for people on the progressive side to, to, to make large leaps and, uh, to characterize, you know, people in certain ways. Right. And, and so, because, uh, Donald Trump was relying on, uh, evangelical Christians in the United States Um, it was easy for a lot of my colleagues to be angry, you know, at at these people and to assume that anyone that was an evangelical necessarily was a supporter of, of Trump. Mm. Um, so one of the things I value about, you know, Ken, for example, uh, was that we were able to have some conversations and, you know, he's in no doubt as to where I stand on these things, you know, um, that you can be an evangelical and still believe that intellect is important and that, um, or, you know, have progressive views on certain issues, right? Um, but I found I have found the last few years difficult. I, I felt sometimes, uh, you know, tribalism, we talked about tribalism and having a home, and I, 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 I wasn't sure where my tribe was. You know, um, I'd be at work and feel that I didn't fit there because uh, I wasn't progressive enough. And, you know, at church, I would feel that I wasn't conservative enough, you know, right. that— um, even in Brantford, you know, there are a lot of Christians that I think yeah. uh, secretly or not so secretly were supportive of, of what Trump was doing. So uh, I think you have to, you know, to, to keep your sanity, I think you do kind of have to find people who share some of your your views, and that helps, you know. So I have found places where there are people that speak a similar language, and um, and that, that just gives me a, you know, um, a haven that I can go to a place where I can you know, see and, and, and read and hear things that, uh, that give me comfort. Uh, I don't want to be always in that place because then we end up in that we, I think we talked about this when we first met is, uh, you don't want to end up in an echo chamber. And that's one of the things that I think is really dangerous that's happening today. Right. I I mean, I want to be talking to people that have different views, but I think it's, it's kind of like the issue in, in, in Christianity of solitude and fellowship, right? You need both. You need to have Christian fellowship. You need to be with other believers, you know, as iron sharpens iron, all that stuff. But you also need solitude. You know, you need to have time where you can just uh, meditate, where you can just be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I kind of feel that way uh, on this issue that, you know, I need to have time with people who are like-minded, but I also need to make sure that I'm not neglecting being out there in the world and and taking positions that sometimes, you know, may not be um, the majority position. Right. I, I have to do what's right for me rather than, you know, doing this all the time, which seems to be what some politicians do all the time. Right. They're always yeah. kind of, you know, they that's sort they,
0: of the populist position.
1: Yeah. They yeah. take a poll before they do anything. Right. In the morning, should I have tea or coffee? Well, what, <laughs> do, what, do, the, what do the polls say? You know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I think that's another thing that frustrates people. Right. I mean, they, they just say, well, that's one thing about Trump. I mean, you can't argue that he uh, lacked conviction. Right. Margaret Thatcher back in the 80s. Same. I mean, yeah. I was not a Margaret Thatcher fan, but you cannot accuse her well, of being mealy-mouthed it's, or.
0: <laughs> it's kind of a weird dynamic too, because so like I think part of the reason, you know, that he probably rose to so much acclaim and 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 like you know he really, people started getting behind him, was that yeah that you said like he he really he had an opinion and he wasn't going to let anybody tell him to shut up. Yeah. But I think maybe part of the problem with him is that you know once people started flocking behind him. And he had this, you know, whole group of supporters. I think he liked the fame a little bit too much, and I mean, that's that's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the same dynamic developing in in musical artists and in YouTubers all the time. It's like as soon as as soon as you get this huge flood of of people that like you and and that would you know that are giving, you, I mean, especially if they're giving you money or they're giving you acclaim, yeah. it's like. You don't want to lose that. Yeah, that's that's exciting, and and that can feel like, especially, I don't know, maybe in the, just the dynamic where we we consider that to be like the primary metric of success. How many people are, are on your side or in your camp? Yeah, are your followers or your whatever, right? And so once you've got that, how do you? Because like you know, when I was talking to Ken about Trump, he's like, Trump, yeah, Trump's totally a populist, and I was like, what? But I, I mean, I could totally see that dynamic. That pops up too. It's just like now now he has all these people that that love him and so like how is he going to keep them there yeah and and then it just becomes like i don't know it's it's how do you, how do you find that line between being being principled and being brave and standing for your ideas and also you know standing up for your team or like or like i guess trying to i mean i guess that's just the problem of being a good leader you have you have to you have to be principled but you can't also be utterly closed to the to the ideas of the people you're leading
1: yeah no, I, I think you're right. Um, honestly, i I probably err on the on the side of keeping the peace too much. Um, you know, it's really easy to be um, a peacemaker to put it positively or to be craven to put it negatively. <laughs> I haven't
0: heard that phrase before Craven.
1: Uh, Just, you know, to be a bit scared of sticking your head above the parapet. I mean, uh, Mm. I think that's, you know, one of the things that really struck me about, uh, well, it's still ongoing, right? I mean, there are people in the Republican Party who deep down know what Trump did and how close, you know, uh, we came to a kind of revolution, right? Mm. Uh, But they're unwilling because of the consequences they would have to pay or face. They're unwilling to say it. You know, I mean, one thing about Mitt Romney is, you know... He has um, he spoken up and said, you know, um, I don't agree with uh, President Trump, and here's why. Um, so there are there is a cost, and and sometimes it's just easier to go along with the majority or go along with, you know, the decision that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always think of that uh, well,
0: because the bang you get for that buck is that you get to be part of something.
1: <laughs> yeah, or well, or even if you don't, agree. I mean, I always uh, this is an example. I, I I do this all the time uh i I, one of the courses i teach is german history right and and people always say things like well you know how could the germans have let you know hitler do what he did and and i always say to them look there's 30 of us in this room for example let's say the class was 30 and i'll I'll say you know okay uh, if the 30 of us were in nazi germany in say 1936 probably five or ten of you would have been in the uh in the SS and been right in there and, you know, been gung ho Nazis and, you know, maybe three or four would have been in the resistance, taking a real risk. The majority would have been going about your daily business, keep your head down, don't cause any troubles, don't, you know, and that's, that's human nature, right? I mean, uh, we too often don't want to rock the boat until it's us that's being come for, you know, the famous line, first they came for the the trade unionists and all that it's easier to react when it's your own situation. So I always respect people that um, that step up, mm-hmm. you know, when when it's not their fight necessarily. So I'll give you an example. Um, a couple of years ago, you may remember the, the Liberal government um, was trying to tie uh, funding for summer students to a declaration um, to do with uh, reproductive rights, right? So anybody... That it worked. Uh, any Christian organization that was in favor of, uh, not in favor of abortion, for example, uh, might have their summer positions endangered, right? And I was really impressed. There was a an NDP uh, MP, uh, Christofferson. Is it Michael Christofferson? I think he's from Hamilton in that area. Okay. Um but uh, find it. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he he uh, I think it's K-R-I-S-T-O-F-F. Um, but he spoke up and he said, "Look, I don't agree with these people, um, yeah. but um, I respect their right to have their own views, and we can't we can't just make a rule that says if if you're from that tribe, you don't get any government money." Um, yeah. So it is possible to to stand up for you know, um, yeah. and I think that's an important point because you know once you start saying that that certain things are you know beyond the pale. Um, the tendency is to have more of those things, right? And then pretty soon, unless you think in a particular way, right. you're
0: pretty pretty soon you have that that jumble together of all the colors that isn't anything exactly.
1: And if and if you dare to you know move outside that, uh, there are consequences, right? Dire consequences. So so that's I mean, and that's that uh, that's that balance,
0: right? Because I mean, uh, is, so I mean, is, is this? I, I guess you're already kind of pointing to to the places germany was at like i was like uh, is this that unique of a moment like our are we're, we're struggling to to figure out how to how to stand up or how to be principled or or find that line between being principled and being uh, i guess n- not rocking the boat
1: well i always i always remember a conversation that i had with one of my uh, professors when i was an undergraduate at trent university and i had kind of made a You know, when you're younger and you're passionate about stuff, you sometimes say things and then, you know, especially if you're trying to impress a professor. And I said, you know, because I was interested in, very much interested even then in the interwar period because it was like so many fundamental things were being challenged and people were having to make tough decisions, right? And uh, I said, you know, I sometimes wonder if we would be up to the challenge of, of of a war. And I said, you know, maybe that's what we need is a good situation like that to kind of see what we're made of and he looked at me and he said basically he didn't say it but he said are you crazy you know he said no I I I believe that you know peace is a good thing and and it's it's wonderful that we live in a time where we don't have to worry about those things now that was 1986 or 87 and two years later of course we had the fall of the wall and and there was genuine optimism about what the future would hold I mean I remember the the summer of 89 people were thinking anything was possible, right? And when mm-hmm. I mean, when President Bush the Elder spoke about um a kinder, gentler world, like people really believed that. There weren't many cynics around at that point. Right. Well, look what's happened, right? right? But but I think now that we're in a situation when we're in an age where like you say, you know, war is a possibility. I mean, you've got, you know, uh, Russia is strong and right. and flexing its muscles. China is Incredibly strong and and yeah. being very belligerent, yeah. Um, you know, populism is is on the rise around the world, but you know you have to remember what war is, yeah. And, and war is broken bodies. It's smashed skulls. Yeah. It's 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 raped women. It's you know the, the, there's a fascination with war, right? I teach a lot of courses on war in society, and I, I get disturbed because I think there's some students who who want to take that course because they're interested in big guns and weapons and right. tanks. And it's like, yeah, well, what does that tank do when it runs over somebody? Right. I, I always think of those things, you know, and, and so war is something to be avoided unless it's absolutely necessary.
0: but And how, how do you avoid it? Like it is, I mean, you, you said that you're, you, you tend to err on the side of, um of trying to prevent there, there being too much conflict. Right. But like if, I guess the the fear I have is if, if we don't work through conflict on a lower level, eventually it's going to just explode right out the top, right? Like if, if we can't, like, I mean, even that expression, iron sharpening iron, I know that's a that's like a Christian expression, but it's like there's, iron sharpening iron doesn't happen by, you know, gently be, making, letting the iron iron be real friendly with each other and just <laughs> being, it's like, that, yeah. that that's a, a that's a almost a violent action it's sure. like in in order to to work through conflict or work through ideas that there ha- we have to kind of be willing to have some level of violence it's like it's just it, maybe that violence can be you know maybe we can do it in good faith you know like w- w- just a minute ago you said maybe i disagree with you on that and then you started <laughs> to just to, to lay out it's like if, if we can i don't know it's like y- y- you don't, you don't have to attack a person's entire being in order to, to attack the idea.
1: Yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the, um, there was you know, the, the new atheism a few years ago, and, and uh, people like Dawkins and mm-hmm. Sam Harris you know, were, were yeah. selling a lot of books. Uh, and uh, Dawkins had uh, an exchange with the um, Oxford theologian uh, Alistair McGraw, and it was fascinating to hear the two of them talk. Uh, I found, and maybe this is my own bias. I mean, i have to go back and listen to the tapes, but uh, I found Dawkins to be really belligerent and a little bit off-putting at times in the way that he did, you know, his part of the conversation. Yeah. Alistair McGraw didn't agree with Dawkins, but he did it in a way, I mean, he never right. kind of crossed that line yeah. into ad hominem kind of argument. Yeah. And I, I think there is a way... Um, to do that. Now, having said that, I mean, it's funny, I, I like Christopher Hitchens, you know, and he yeah. could be quite salty sometimes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I used to always recommend, uh, I used to have an assignment in my first year course, I'd say, I want you to write a paper on the person that you think is most symbolic of, of the, tw- the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily the most powerful person, but someone who symbolizes the things that happened. In the, and it was interesting in the late 90s into the early 2000s, I got a lot of papers on Princess Diana. And I always said to them, I said, you need to watch what uh, Christopher Hitchens has to say on Diana." And I actually had a couple on Mother Teresa, and I, I like Mother Teresa, okay. but I, I always gave them the little book that I have by Christopher Hitchens. He did not care for Mother Teresa really? at all. He said she she took money from uh, the Duvaliers in, in Haiti, and wow. for him, that was a, that was a line. and he, he <laughs> was quite, you know, and, and, and he could be quite uh, harsh. Right. But I, I always like people to just say, see, you know, that's what's out there. That's the other side of the argument. You don't need to agree with him, but you need to contend right. with that. Anyways, time, yeah. Um, but yeah, going back to McGraw and, and Dawkins, I mean, I do think it's possible to disagree fundamentally, but to do it in a way that, that isn't necessarily um, violent in that sense, right?
0: Right. But yeah. yeah. I mean, even you, you mentioned uh, Sam Harris too. Like he, he he, even though, I mean, he's, Kind of very anti faith, anti religion, mm. spent some time talking to somebody who's kind of rising in the religious community, Jordan Peterson. They had their mm. whole like several conversations. And it was like those, even though they were, there were some rough sections and there, there was some, there was some talking past each other that like they, both of those guys really sat down and tried, tried to have a conversation and tried to get through mm. and tried to get to the bottom of stuff. And it's like that. That was so interesting to watch and to listen to those conversations because it was like, you know, it, it, I guess it was just refreshing. I, I don't exactly. see like obviously we're we're not seeing that in the presidential yeah. debates.
1: Yeah, no, you know. Um, and and I want to get a uh, plug in for someone else that I really respect. I, mean, I think we talked about this over the phone, but um, I I saw a situation as a as a doctoral student uh, in England, and uh, there was a situation where. Um, a historian from Germany had been invited to talk at one of the Oxford colleges, and uh, his name was Ernst Nolte. And Nolte was not an apologist for the Nazis, but he was he was writing, he was was writing, doing research where he was saying, look, the Nazis did some horrible things, but so did the Stalinists. And he yeah. said, you know, it, really, it's, um, yeah. it's an issue of uh, totalitarianism. Anyways, that kind of made him persona non grata. And uh, what happened was when word got out that he'd been invited to speak... Uh, there was a backlash and so he was uninvited. Well, my supervisor made a point of re-inviting him and he gave really no sense of what he thought of Nolte except at the actual lecture he, he used a, a portion of John Stuart Mill that essentially says, you know, how do I know if a man is a fool unless I let him speak? I present to you. Right. <laughs> um, but the kicker is is that uh, Peter Pulzer was an Austrian Jew. Mm-hmm. His family right. fled the Nazis. And um, I talked to him a couple of years ago uh, because of some of the things that happened at Laurier around free speech. And, you know, he said to me, he said, no, I, I felt that he had the right to speak as long as I had the right to question him. Right. And, and I think that's what we sometimes forget, right? And and so, yeah, I think, you know, Peterson and, and Harris, and like you said, sometimes that that um, civility is going to drop for a moment. You know, there's going to be heated moments. Yeah. But if, if the intent is sound, if the people are trying to listen to one another, I think that's the key, right? Yeah. If you don't even make the effort, then... You know why bother, right? I mean, you might as well just go back and talk to your bases, right?
0: <laughs> I feel like I, I I always get kind of lost in this tunnel of talking about t- talking about how to relate to to different people, and I'm sure we're gonna make our way back to that. But I, I guess I was just thinking a second ago. You, you started talking about why you why you started studying what you did study. Was there a sense of like you felt like it was important? It wasn't just interesting. It was like this is this is something I want to learn about. Why?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, that same that same professor. You know, I, I said to him, you know, why why should we study history? And he said, well, you know, because you find it interesting and fun. You know, and he, he's a you know he he was very much a humanist, and you know he didn't really believe you needed to have uh, any larger purpose beyond that. For me, I, I think I, I I'm like you. I think a bit that way. I I, I was always kind of looking for that other element, and and for me, I find you know trying to understand how things happen in the past, not judge the past. I, I find that sometimes students want to do that, right? They want to kind of throw rocks at people in the past, and it's like, well, we have to understand what they you know look at it from their yeah. perspective. What I mean, judgment choices? isn't
0: just negative, though. Pardon me. I mean, judgment isn't just negative, right?
1: Well, no, but I mean, um, I mean, sometimes we can make you know terrible mistakes right sure, sure. um but but you know we sometimes we tend to judge the past by our norms and values today right and, right, and we, right. there's been 100 or 200 years to develop right um but no I, I i guess i was fascinated with the interwar period because the stakes seemed to be so high and um, you know for example in, in the french uh, socialist party the the two highest ranking officials in that party uh, when the war broke out and France was um, was beaten in a few weeks by the Germans, one became a resistor, the other became a collaborator, and these were guys that had worked, you know, side by side. And uh, the other one that always fascinated me was the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was very much against the First World War, uh, and and was a conscientious objector. And in the 1930s, he came to the conclusion that he had to fight against the against the Nazis. He he said, you know. Uh, when the Mm. Indians lay down on the tracks, the British wouldn't run over them. But if people were to lie down on the railroad tracks in front of Hitler, he's just going to, you know, push the pedal to the metal and whatever happens. So, so those kinds of decisions were very painful and, and difficult for people to make, but they had to make them. And I guess that's why I found that, that period so fascinating. You know, there was a lot of reconsidering of positions and sometimes splitting of friendships and, uh. Um, you know, so this, so, you know, ideas do matter. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that,
0: you know, ideas do matter.
1: Mm -hmm. So whether it's, uh, whether it's Christianity or nationalism, imperialism, that's
0: almost almost more like ideals do matter.
1: Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I mean, uh, they're, they're close. You know, they're they're spelled almost the same way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I didn't mean. Okay, yeah, good point. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I, I think um, people will die for an idea, right? Yeah. I mean, we we talked about the French in 1792, uh, the Republic, and and the end of monarchies, and and you know, uh, the the people being the 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 most important thing in determining what was right for a nation. Those ideas fueled. Uh, you know the the creation of a huge army and 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 France basically went all over Europe and then spurred nationalism in places like Spain and Italy and Germany you know uh it, but that's what's interesting too is right the the concept, the, the the outcomes aren't always what uh, the people expected right right uh you know the French ended up uh you know spawning these other movements that uh ended up coming back and and haunting them right in the case of Germany especially
0: <laughs> can you- when it comes to a word like nationalism how, mm-hmm. like obviously that, that that's that's a key ingredient for for in in building a war narrative of okay those guys are evil we we need to right you know, we need to prevent the evil from coming in or we need to prevent it from spreading right and and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys yeah but it, I mean it's such a similar concept to like patriotism and is there i mean it is patriotism just nationalism masquerading as a virtue or is, is there something that, that can be valuable about patriotism, patriotism too?
1: Um, hmm. I, I think, um, not to dodge the question, but I, I was thinking about this earlier in some of the things you were saying. I, I think that what needs to always be uh, kept in mind, right? Is humility. Um, so it's okay to have a, a pride for your nation but there needs to be humility. So I think Canadians are a good example of this, right? I mean, we tend to say, well, you know, at least we're not the Americans. There's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of like <laughs> yeah. negative uh, uh, nationalism. And I think that's really dangerous because I think we're yeah. not that different in in many respects. Yeah. Although, you know, the last few years has, has revealed some of the ways that we are different, right? I mean, uh, when they did that greatest Canadian competition a few years ago, the CBC ran it. Uh, the winner was uh, Tommy Douglas, right? The the founder of healthcare. And, and so the whole idea about socialized medicine and, and the American, the strange kind of resistance that the Americans have to that, mm-hmm. um, there's something there, right? But I mean, um, we can become smug and, and you know, we have our own issues, right? I mean, if you yeah. substitute instead of African-American, substitute uh, First Nations, in every sentence, with some of the same, yeah, you realize, you know, oh my issues. goodness, it's the same thing, right? Overrepresentation right. in prisons, alcoholism, uh, you know, inequity in terms of uh, financial, you know, economic power, yeah. all of that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so there's always something that we can we can work on, you know. And and uh, the other thing that popped into my head, I can't remember what it was you were saying, but um, I think it was like in movements, you know, and how we we have this propensity to to, to want things for ourselves. I mean, the Bible's full of these examples, right? I mean, even with Jesus, right? Uh, uh, was it, was it James and John who were sitting there, you know, so which one of us is going to sit on your right (laughs) hand, Jesus? And he's like, these guys don't even get it. Like, why do I hang around with these losers? (laughs) Right. You know? Uh, but I mean, that's, that's it. Right. I mean, you go to church and there's people that, you know, they're on the board or, you know, and I say that as a board member at my own church, but, um, it's so easy for us to get puffed up, right? And uh, I think that humility um, is such a, a great See, thing.
0: I, 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 Humility has been a really a, a, a touch point for me a lot, and just kind of processing, like, what what, what are we missing in, in these conflicts? How, how do we work through conflicts? Yeah, it's, mm. it's humility, but I think, like, well, I, I want to hear what your definition of humility is, because I think a lot of people have a slight, like, I mean, some people think being, humble as just being humiliated or something like that. Like it could be, be a silly idea, but...
1: Oh, I, I think, uh, well, a, a classic example would be someone like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, right? I mean, you know, he was brave. I mean, he took on the world's most powerful empire at the time. And yet there was a humility to him. I mean, certainly the the way that, you know, the kinds of things that he he practiced, you know, these ideas of uh, Satyagraha and uh, self-sufficiency and, and, you know, so it made him a more difficult opponent in a sense, right? You know, some of these uh, revolutionaries, you get the sense that as soon as the revolution happens, they're going to become the oppressor, right? Just a new oppressor. Whereas, you know, that didn't happen with Gandhi, right? Um, uh, I think Martin Luther King was another one. Um, Yeah, yeah. um, And I think, you know, I do teach some courses that have a component of of, uh, leadership involved. And and I think we've got a really twisted, warped sense of what leadership is. Uh, I really, you know, when you look at Jesus Christ, for example, I mean, wonderful leader, but he was a servant leader, and I think right. uh, too many of our leaders are are puffed up, or they're, you know, they 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 they, they want to win, or they 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 they're in it for their own gain, whereas you know the best leaders are people um, that can admit defeat, um, or that can admit that they don't have the right answer. You know, one of the things I admired about Obama when he was president was that he surrounded himself with people that didn't always agree with him, right? Hmm. And I think that's a real indicator. If you, if you as a leader have to have people around you that uh, think you're the greatest thing, then it's probably, there's a problem there in terms of your own self uh, worth, right? You need to be uh, reaffirmed every so often.
0: Right. I always look at, at people in that situation or like when I start to see myself in that situation, it's like, Oh, that's probably a sign that I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat insecure in my beliefs or I'm somewhat insecure in my positions. And so I, I'm, you know, if, if you really believe it's, and, and there has to be kind of an, an ordering of like what you really believe in and what you don't believe in as much. Mm. And and having people that disagree with you around you helps you to figure that out even too and to kind of rank order your beliefs and yeah. figure out. But yeah, if, if if I'm afraid to have anybody say anything that I disagree with me, agree with or to me, then it's like, oh, that, that's probably a sign that like, that I'm not even sure what I really believe or yeah. something like that.
1: No, I, I think you're bang on. um, and And so, you know, we talked about, uh, colleagueship, right. And what it means to be a colleague. And, right. um, you know, when I'm on a committee or when I, when I'm in a program, the, the colleagues that I really value are people that can, excuse me, that can say, oh, that doesn't make sense. Or you know, they can say, no, that that's a silly idea or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, and then lay out why they, they think that. And I, and I end up saying, you know what, mm-hmm. you're right.
0: Your idea is way better. Is, is there a line though, between who's allowed to say that and who's not? Because if if just like, you know, when somebody who I know doesn't get my my point of view mm-hmm. tells me that my opinion is silly, it's like that doesn't mean anything to me. It's just like, okay, sure. you, you don't get it.
1: I mean, being human beings, right? There are some people that can praise our work and, and will we'll be really honored by that, right? And other people that might praise what we're doing and we're like, you don't even understand what I do. And the same thing if they disagree, right? There's some people that if they were to say, no, I think your your, your reasoning's flawed there, we'd really listen to it and other people we might not. So yeah, I do think um for good or for ill we 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 listen to some people more than others. But I like to think that I'm able to that that someone can earn that respect and that I'm not just right. well, know, yeah, shutting people earned, down right? out of out of hand. Yeah, I think so. I mean um, you know I'm amazed sometimes people sometimes people come into a new environment and they immediately start wanting to change everything. I do yeah, believe a good place that, the, yeah, I mean, I think we can overdo that. I mean, in some, you know, um, organizations, they make you wait forever, Right. but I think, yeah, first meeting probably is not when you want to start redrawing the, the constitution of the organization,
0: right? <laughs> right. Well, that's, I guess I, I've been thinking about things in terms of, of like building a room or I guess, yeah, it's like you're building an, a, you're establishing a relationship with somebody. You, uh, and maybe that's even earlier. We were talking about that, like people need to have an in-group because those are the people that that can tell you you're wrong. Yes, that you, you kind of you, that you know well enough, or you know, kind of appreciate or or can see things from your perspective enough to see, you know, like they're they're not just like not misunderstanding your your axioms, or they're not mi- misunderstanding, you know, what it is that you're after, and critiquing you based on just a totally different perspective is like they're trying their best or, or they have actually the faculties to see things more or less from your view. And they're pointing at it and say, this actually isn't lining up your ideals, even your way of talking about things and, and your way of looking at them, your arguments aren't lining up and, and you need to look at this. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, in, in, in faith, right, that's a that's a model, right, is the the idea of having a spiritual director or having a, an accountability partner or somebody that you know, someone who does share a lot of your views, but but can also say to you when you're going off the rails a little bit, say, "Hey, Peter, you know, I'm not I'm not seeing the alignment here." And 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 you know, there's the respect there for you to say, "Well, you know, if, if Bob is saying this, then there must be you know I need to look at what's going on." So yeah, I, I think that that's true, you know. And um, I think same thing in our work environments. If we can have those people around us, mm-hmm. um, and they may not be, you know. It may not be a huge number of people, but um, but I think it's important to have people like that around you if you're a leader. Because um, otherwise it becomes a dictatorship, right? It becomes, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's my way or the
0: highway. Yeah. Well, okay, so we were talking about humility. And, and that's, like I said, I've been trying to like unpack that concept for a little bit. And like to me, the, the whole story that's associated with that, that virtue is like, is, I mean, I just think about the passion narrative. Mm. I think about, you know, what, what, What's happening there? Why, why is that an important part of Christianity? I mean, part of it is for a lot of evangelicals especially is the kind of like is the idea that Christ paid for our sins and so now we're, we're free and, and, and that's you know that, that's an important angle, I think I'm still kind of processing what what, what to do with that. but the, the part of it that really lands for me is, is looking at that story and seeing Christ is teaching me how to live and how to live is to die. It's, it's to be willing to, to lay down your life for your friends but even in a in a more kind of practical way is that that's how that's how regeneration of life happens that's yes. it's like you know and it's built into so many so many angles of the practice of christianity is like baptism and yep. and all these things is like the way that we grow the way that we enter into kind of a more you know because we have the idea of like being born again like we we actually think that dying and becoming regenerated that's that's part of how you live life and i think that's I think that's what I see in, in humility is just like it was interesting. I was talking to my friend. He was he was saying he was watching this Netflix series um, about Dracula, and I mean, my idea of Dracula was pretty simple. And like, I hadn't actually seen any of the movies or anything mm. about him, or or read the. I think maybe actually we did watch the really really old movie one one Halloween. It was kind of fun, but like. I didn't get that there's actually sort of a there's a symbolism to the character of a, of a vampire as well as a lot of other the mm. common monsters that we tell stories about but like within this Netflix series they really unpack this idea that the 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 problem or, with Dracula and the reason he's a monster isn't because he wants to steal everybody's life or anything or or, or just like his problem is that he doesn't want to die and he's not willing to die. Isn't it it's like, he, that's the reason he's immortal is because he's not willing to die. And it's like, immortality in your current state, that's a bad thing. Staying the way you are forever, that's that's actually, that's really scary. Because mm-hmm. you're not, the way that you are, if you don't change at all, that's trajectory you're going, if you just exactly repeat your life exactly the way, I mean, yeah. even in really simple terms, if you just like, <laughs> if if you were to just keep going to work and living your life exactly the same pattern. Groundhog day. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that, but I'm saying the world around you is changing and unless you respond to it, you're, yeah. you're in deep trouble. Even as like I was saying, it's something as simple as like having to deal with the current moment of like of figuring out COVID. It's like, if you were to just keep going to work and, and wearing the same thing and not wearing a mask and going to work at the same time when businesses shut down or when, and, and didn't, didn't change your pattern, didn't change your, your lifestyle at all to respond to the situation, you'd be screwed. Yeah. You, you'd You'd run out of food. It's like you actually have to respond to the world around you because it's changing. And so yep. you, you ha- your current pattern of life has to die if you're going to survive.
1: Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, I think a lot of what, you, I agree with what you've said about uh, Christianity, right? Fundamentally, it's about dying and, and uh, it's about a lot of little deaths too, right? Like, right. you know, am I, am I going to be insistent on getting my way with my wife? No, I mean, I really shouldn't. You know that's a kind of death, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, do we have to have uh, steak again, right? right? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, 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 the analogy that I really like is, you know, if you think of what farmers do, right? I mean, um the, the plant has to die okay. uh, in order to for for new life to 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 spring right. up. The right? seed,
0: yeah, the seed dies. It's exactly. Ba- even the imagery there of it being buried yeah. to its Yeah.
1: You know, and and I I think you could probably come up with all kinds of you know there's all kinds of different analogies that are suitable, uh you, you know you you think of uh, salmon right you know and spawning, and how a salmon just you know incredible journey to get back to its original spawning grounds and and it ends mm. up, you know working itself to death to be able to to lay its eggs in the original spot and then it dies
0: spawning. after yeah it? I yeah. did not know that that's crazy yeah. so that's, yeah that's nature a...
1: is full of these examples and uh, um. And I think that's not an accident, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is, I think maybe humility in its like, in its most good setting, or or when it does the most good, or maybe what what true humility actually is, isn't. It's not just being dead all the time, because obviously, if you're dead, you're not doing anything. Mm. But it's knowing when to die. It's, it's it's knowing your time. Yeah,
1: and I mean, I think the mis uh, the misnomer or the misperception is that humility is this kind of. Um, feebleness, right? It's, it's milk toast. And I don't think Jesus was milk toast at all. I mean, he was on that cross and he could have ordered down legions. If it were me, I would have had those Romans fried. (laughs) I would have, you know, I would have called down angels and, you know, but I mean, he had all that at his fingertips. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to remember that because if he didn't, then the whole thing's a lie, right? I mean, this idea of Jesus is all God and all man, and Mm -hmm. we can't really get our heads around that. But if he wasn't, God, he couldn't have called down right. Legions, so it, right? It,
0: it's like an extreme. Like that's where it becomes like this kind of a, idea of an archetype. Is like he he's the most has the most power, but chooses not to. Yes, not not to, not down. to abuse it. Right, and
1: and I think the way you said that's exactly right. He chose to lay it down. Right, wasn't it? Wasn't imposed on him? He had the choice, right. and he decided to be obedient, and that is humility. But that's that's courage too. It it, it takes right. courage to be humble. Yeah, sometimes. well,
0: because yeah, you have to contrast humility. With that other thing we were talking about, just of sort of being passive, because I think those can get confused, conflated yeah. too. Because, yeah, you don't you don't get anywhere if you just every time there's an argument, you just kind of say, okay, yeah. If you just try to like really keeping the peace, really being a peacemaker, doesn't just mean being complacent, or doesn't just mean being accepting of everybody's opinions. It means actually wrestling with what's going on.
1: Yeah, in some cases, I think to, to you know, it, it, it's like, um, well, <laughs> I may make it, this may not be uh, popular, but I, I mean, I saw a lot of people talking on, on Facebook about, you know, uh, our soldiers sacrificed everything for freedom and now we're being told we can't do this, we can't do that, and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, that's actually a misreading of history. Um, uh, you know, in the second world war, we had, uh, we had rationing, we had conscription, we had blackouts, et cetera, censorship. So we, we voluntarily put aside some things and the state where there was coercion there, right. but we decided that we needed to put those things right. down in order to achieve the higher yeah, good, the which was yeah. freedom with a capital F. So yeah. some, you know, same way with peacemaking. I think you're right. It may sound contradictory, but sometimes as a peacemaker, you need to kick ass a little bit.
0: Yeah. That's that's a great you know, <laughs> I haven't started doing a clips thing for this channel, but if if I do, that's gonna that's gonna be one <laughs> of the yeah.
1: Well, I have to tell you that one of the things that made me laugh out loud when I was doing my doctoral research was I actually found a a pacifist conference where there was a a, a kind of fight broke out. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, my my, my friends would say, "What?" <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> there's actually a, a logical explanation, but it's a long story.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, because if that actually totally makes sense because if if you become too focused on utterly um never utterly being utterly non conflict non confrontational Eventually, the confrontation happens, and it's not going to be the version of it that you like. It's going to be a bad one, right? Yeah.
1: And it didn't help that, you know, there, there were, I mean, there were all different kinds of pacifism. And particularly the British and the French had different definitions. I mean, the British pacifism tends to mean absolute pacifism. You know, like the Quakers, you never take up arms, where the French never really had, they they would talk about different types of pacifism, they would qualify it, but that most of them were people that would go to war under circum, certain circumstances. So, you know, they, they never quite, they were kind of talking past each other a little bit, but anyway.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I actually want to ask you specifically, I wanted to see if you could maybe just kind of tell a little bit of the story of that kind of, that back and forth between pacifism and you know, wanting to fight in a war. But before that, I I was just thinking about, we were even talking about this before we started recording, you were talking about, you know, being an academic is supposed to be about being a a group of learners. Mm -hmm. But you you, you said that's not always what's happening. You said there's there's a glitch that's happening somewhere.
1: Right. Um, Well, I mean, the roots of... um the university, of course, go back to medieval times and to uh, to the church, and um, but it was always, you know, conceived in the in the early days as a community of of people, right? A community of learners, um, and and I think, you know, to varying degrees uh, it, it is or it isn't now. Uh, it, it really depends on where you are and and what what school you're at and what what particular department you're in. Um, there's a lot of forces that can that can uh, work against that. Um, the kind of thing we were talking about. I mean, tribalism is one, right? Uh, rigidity, uh, rigidity of thinking, um, uh, competition in some cases. I mean, it depends on on where you are, but sometimes, you know, uh, research money is limited. The dollars are limited, and and so in some some senses, you're competitors for you know an ever dwindling kind of uh, budget. Um, but it is possible to have real community too. Um, you know, I, I think we've been lucky uh, at Brantford. Um, one of the things that's been interesting is that I, I do think there is a sense of, um, sense that that our research, our work needs to be tied into the community. Um, and I think that comes from when we first opened, you know, we were so small and uh, the city was so enthusiastic and, and so supportive I mean, in the early days, you know, there were a number of buildings uh, that the university got at a very good, reasonable price. And yeah, they had to, you know, uh, adapt them and and refurbish them. Uh, And so that became a a really good symbiotic kind of relationship where um, the university was helping to uh, revivify and resuscitate the downtown. Um, So a lot of us in those early days, you know, certainly... um, I remember when when we had the ceremony and the the, the original two of us, uh, Doctor Warwick and I, Gary Warwick, you know, we looked at each other and we could see how much uh, the community had invested in this enterprise, and we really felt a responsibility to try and build something that was responsive to the uh, mm. to the community. So you know, I think that's carried on. I mean, a lot of my colleagues are are really committed to that. They do um, work in the community, whether it's you know. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's all all kinds of great examples. I mean, uh, the uni- uh, the university has um, user design, user uh, experience design program uh, that has a lot of uh, links to various organizations, both corporate and and, and nonprofit. Um, the criminology program is really tied into a lot of different organizations mm-hmm. as well. Uh, there's a social justice uh, program both at the undergrad and at the graduate level. Uh, and a lot of individual researchers who do community-based research, you know, right. and we're really fortunate. I mean, we have a community that's anxious to partner with us, and then we also have, uh, you know, Six Nations Reserve just down the road. Um, you know, there there are real opportunities to to work collaboratively. So, um, but yeah, as I say, you know, it, it, we're we're not immune to the kinds of um. Trends and and waves of, of of things that happen out in the larger world, and I think the last few years have been have been difficult, right, because of the the kinds of tensions that uh, that you talk about. Right. Uh, the challenges well, you, were, you
0: were saying you have all these different programs that the school is then associated with, it. so there's sort of an obligation to like make sure you don't step on the toes of all all the, all the programs you're trying to to hold up. And and is is that I don't know. We were talking about populism earlier. Mm. It's like is 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 that obligation to I guess almost to your patrons is that is that what gets in the way of learning sometimes it can
1: I mean I think that's a really
0: perceptive observation Um,
1: I think you know the university has become corporatized in the sense that um, we're like any other uh, corporation that's selling a product right right? yeah Um, and that's because of the decline in, in government funding and so we've had to get more and more of our money as a percentage of what we need um, from the students, right? So tuition went up and so now students begin to feel like consumers, right? Because they've paid an awful lot of money. Uh, Give me the paper and then uh, that'll get me a job. Right. And so we have to advertise more and we become, you know, the Ontario university fair where grade 11s and grade 12s go to check out the different universities. It's like a trade show and we all hawk our wares and, and, uh, we, right. we give out pens and little goodie swag bags man, and things like that. I mean, I'm so
0: <laughs> cancerous to me, man. It, like it's. I, I was reading, Ken suggested I read this book by Mark Knoll called the scandal, of the evangelical mind. Have you heard of that book?
1: Uh, no, he mentioned it to okay. me. Yeah.
0: So I started reading it. I haven't got through the whole thing yet, but yep. he, he started talking about this key moment in the United States history or the church. I think it was even in the, maybe the late 1700s. Um, I, I think it all had to do with kind of the conversation around separation of church and state, mm-hmm. and when once the institutions of the church that were, I guess, connected to the government—I don't totally understand the dynamic that was there—but basically, I guess once the, once once they severed those ties and they said basically, churches, you got to fend for yourself. The same thing ha- suddenly became a free market of advertising and figuring and trying to like get people to support your church because you know mm-hmm. you're you're out there and you're like. You you got to pay the rent, or you got to pay you got to pay yeah. whatever bills you got to pay, yeah. and suddenly it's it's like people might just go to another church if they like it better. So you n- now you're incentivized to preach, not just the the most truthful. Like your, your your incentive conditions aren't just like look for truth or try to learn or try to teach or right. just try to seek God. Preach what's popular, right? Yeah, it becomes this po- the same kind of populism thing. Or, so, yeah. or you're just trying to like that. Well, it becomes I think. Um, my dad recommended a long time ago this um, the book by Robert Kiyosaki. I think that's the guy's name, right? Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Poor Dad, and he he makes this key point that like when it comes to books that sell, always the the people who wrote them they're they're not called the best authors. They're called the best selling authors mm. because the key thing is that once you've entered into a market of trying to sell ideas, it's it's not about the best ideas. It's about the people who know how to sell their ideas the best.
1: Yeah, it's. Um... It's a complicated uh, thing, isn't it? I mean, um, I, I'm a coordinator of a program now, the Humanities uh, with Leadership Foundations uh, program. And even that name, uh, you know, is, is a reflection of the tensions between different uh, programs. And, uh, you know, whatever we think of the idea, there are always sensitivities. If a program starts teaching in a certain area and another program comes along and is kind of, you know, right adjacent there's that nervousness, right? Uh, you know, we've been doing this. Um, so, in one sense, I don't believe that any one program owns things like human rights or right. nationalism or identity. Um, but I also understand that 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 nervousness in an age when we all have to kind of justify our existence. Right. And, right. and, you know, uh, your brother's at Laurier and he probably has seen this I mean, there are so many programs now and they all have different names and they're usually long names cause we're trying to work in certain buzzwords. Right. Um, and, and it's like, we've kind of cannibalized ourselves to some extent and created repackaged things in different, you know, different packages and say, Hey, how about this one, this shiny one over here, you right. know? Um, so there is a bit of that going on. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting. I mean, being a coordinator, uh, I've embraced doing some of the, um, the talking to, to prospective students and I just mm. try and, I try and talk about the things that are important to me, yeah. uh, that I think are important to the program. And, um, I don't mind, you know, I, I actually like doing that and uh, we'll see cause it's a new, it's a new program. Uh, we have five majors right now and that we had two and yeah. then suddenly we're up to five, and uh, so I'm, you know, I'm meeting with quite a few students over the next couple of weeks, uh, prospective students, and hopefully we can we can build up the numbers. And I, I I don't have this kind of plan for world domination or anything, uh, but I but I would like to get you know just a, a kind of um, a critical mass. I think is the important thing, um, you know, actually this year the first year course in HMLD is um, we have fourteen. And that's so much nicer, like, you know, when you have a really small group, it gets a little uncomfortable because, you know, everybody has to be contributing. And if someone's having an off day, you know, right. they feel like I can't, you know, I can't hide or something. So when you have, you know, a dozen or 15, that's a good number because um, it just makes a, a, you know, there's not the pressure to be always performing, right? So so numbers are important in that sense. But unfortunately, yeah, there has been a, a sense in which... Um, you know, bums and seats is, is important. And uh, um, that that's unfortunate, you know. Um, but uh, so anyways, that's, a, I guess, a long-winded way of saying that, um, you know, there are so many things that, that can work against community, right? I mean, whether it's ego or, you know, clashes that maybe there's a, a legitimate disagreement on something that's important, right? Mm-hmm. And people, you know, sometimes a department can be really close mm-hmm. for a number of years and then then there's a fracture, right? And but I think you know, having said all of that, I I do think that there is what I value about um, Laurie Branford is that there are, there is a core of people who really do take the idea of um, the university and community working collaboratively. They take that seriously, and I think I'm lucky to be in a place that 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 where that's the case. I mean, I know that. in in a number of universities, you know, there's an uneasy relationship between the university and the, and the home uh, hometown. And and that's unfortunate, you know, it can actually lead to tension sometimes. Um, uh, You know, Oxford was was well known for that. It's a very working class town. And, and yet it has this university that's very, uh, you know, upper crust. And so sometimes there are, there, you know, in the past, there've been uh, examples of, of violence and
0: stuff. Well, let's let let's skip over. Let's transition over to to, to that other thing. I I, I want to see if to to all the potential. You know, I'm I'm not sure if if there's a technical definition of an academic, but to the, to the people who are aspiring to try to learn something, mm-hmm. what is it that you what is it that you want young people to know right now who are trying trying to to learn how to learn?
1: Um. I think for me, what I've learned over the years is that is that process is probably more important than uh, the nuggets of information. So it's about you know um, how do you um, how do you find the information that you're looking for? What what questions do you ask? Right? I think questions are really important. What are the you know sometimes people get off on a they go off on a tangent because they're asking you know questions that maybe don't lead anywhere, or, or you know, some would say the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a kind of uh, a curiosity about the world, I think, is, is fundamental. And, um, you know, a bit of a doggedness, you know, I, I can think of a couple of students. I remember one in particular who, you know, if I were on death row and I had to entrust my future to this, to one person to find, you know, the evidence that I needed uh this would be the guy that I would pick. you know he he just right. he had a a relentlessness about him when he was researching. so curiosity, you know relentlessness and then i I do think that that um that other thing that kind of ties into to uh to humility, but a kind of expansiveness, an openness, you know, not to dismiss other people out of hand, but uh an openness to to various uh ways of thinking. I think all of those things to me are part of being an academic. Um, You know, I don't think you have to look a certain way. Uh, I've had colleagues who uh, could be passed on the street and and no one would guess that they were an academic. And I think they took that as a a badge of honor. Uh, There there was a guy um, at St. John's College when I was at Oxford who... Was regularly rounded up as a as a vagrant. He was actually a philosophy don at St John's College. <laughs> it
0: would be a philosopher. Yeah, it would be exactly. <laughs>
1: um, you know. So, uh, and I've always been drawn to people who, uh, again, when you first meet them, you don't necessarily go, "Oh, that's an academic." Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that. You know. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's a bit of performance that goes on. People think that they have to act and be a certain way and use certain. Uh, language and you know it's a way of distancing yourself from other people sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about um, you know the questions you ask, which uh, I think maybe that that appeals to you because I mean you're you're a question asker, right? And um, yeah, uh, to me that's what an academic is: is someone who says, you know, why, why is it that way? Like I'm always playing those games with with language, right? Just the other day we said something, somebody said, yeah, we used to put it in the kitty, right? And I said. Where does that expression come from? Why? Right. Why? And why is it we put it in the kitty? Why not in the puppy?
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm sure there's a reason, right? I mean, you know, just silly things like that. But yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, why do we do things the way that we, that we do, right? Why? Mm-hmm. Why do we use certain terminology? There's always a. Yeah. These things are interesting.
0: Well, I guess I was wondering how much of your ethic, I don't know, either about about learning or about being. Mm. Did you? did you find, did you pull out of your, your studies? Like, I mean, you studied a, a moment of, ex, of pretty, pretty serious tension. And, and, and I mean, that's a pretty hard conversation to have. When's the time to pick up a gun? You know, this, the, the whole pacifism conversation. right? Like, when, <laughs> well, is that, is that mm-hmm. part of, part of this?
1: Um, yeah, probably. I mean, you know, <laughs> and sometimes there are things that don't necessarily make sense or inconsistencies, right? We have to live with that. I mean, you know, I think it's pretty clear in the Bible that Jesus was a pacifist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not sure I could be. If someone was, you know, about to murder my wife, uh, I, I think I would probably intervene, although I wouldn't mm-hmm. be very effective, but <laughs> I might uh, get myself killed. But I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if I can go there, even though I suspect that I'm supposed to. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are these inconsistencies, right? But yeah, um, part of it is those big questions. Um You know, part of it is I. I love um, I love uh, the sleuthing. Mm -hmm. I love when a student comes to me, you know, with a research problem, and I at first I can't solve it. Like they're looking for something, and I said, "Leave that with me. I'll I'll find it." You know, Um, I like that part. It's a little bit of detective work. You know, um, uh, I love that part of it, and I and I love uh, the seminar. I love when you get uh, a group of students that are engaged, and there's a really good conversation you know Uh, for me uh, academics is a conversation and and, and, you know in the best uh, in the best of worlds by what I mean what I mean by that is that you know there are a lot of questions whether it's in history or physics or whatever you know uh, we think we've got it sorted we've we've settled what the the reality is right and that might that might actually pertain for you know 20-30 years and then some young Turk comes along and says actually I've done some more research or I've looked in the archives and and they turn the whole thing on its head, right right? and and uh, and sometimes that can be hard for people, and they can get a lot of uh, flack for it. yeah, um, but I see history as a conversation. you know that the, um, we're always kind of advancing a little bit, and but it's never completely settled, you know yeah. um and i and i I think that's a really apt uh, metaphor. I like it. Um, so the times where I've been really happy in the classroom are those times where, Um, There is that conversation. I'll give one example. Um, I've had a lot of great classes. I just had a really good class a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago uh, in contemporary Europe. But there was one class that stood out. It was a fourth-year seminar on international relations. So looking at uh, a lot of issues in the interwar period and into the Second World War. And I think there were about uh, 12 in that class, and most of them went to grad school. Some really great, uh, brilliant students. A couple of them, well, one of them I know is, is a professor now. Uh, but they would have knock them down, drag them out, fights about certain things. I remember we were talking about the question of did the Allies do enough to uh, you know to help the Jews when they when they were you know when when the the Holocaust was going on, and the room was evenly divided, mm. and they were talking about. You know, attack angles of bombers and and collateral damage, <laughs> and how quickly the Germans could rebuild right. the track, and what did the uh, the inmates think? and right. like they were bringing everything and and it was that ability to dig and and to bring different things to bear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't get in a fist fight or anything, but but you know there there, there were some heated moments, but right. it was such a great seminar because these guys were all uh, passionate about it. They were smart and they knew how to find little bits of information. And, you know, the reality is in some of these questions, you can make a solid case either way, right? Uh, it's that's not the, always the
0: scary thing. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> not.
1: And, and I tell my students that because they they sometimes they'll say, oh, I only got a C because you don't agree with me. And, you know, I really strive not to do that. I mean, right. I'm I'm a human being. So maybe from time to time, yeah. my biases uh, creep in. But I know I've given A's to papers, that are diametrically opposed on a particular subject. To me, it's the quality of the argument that matters more than the actual thesis, right? Um, and I do think there are some some issues where you could make a solid case either way, you know.
0: Yeah. I, well, I mean, even like you were talking about like some of the talking about some of the ethics of the end of, of World War, especially in, in World War II. I was thinking about I've I've heard even people claim like you know it didn't need to end by bombing two whole cities. I mean, you you can demonstrate that power just by dropping it in a field. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's my own belief.
0: Um, uh, it's funny. It's like, have we almost just solved that problem and realized, oh shit, we, we screwed that one up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think, you know, at the popular level, there's still a lot of support for uh, the use of the atomic bomb. Um, I know that when I first started teaching at at Laurier Brantford, uh, you know, I talked about uh, that. Um, (coughs) <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I, I dealt with that issue. And, um, you know, I, I talked about, there's a, a famous book by a man named Gar Alperovitz, where he talks about the use of the bomb and basically argues that it was more, uh, a warning to the Soviet union. You know, we have this weapon and we will oh, use it.
0: Interesting. Um, think about that dynamic.
1: and one of the guys that was taking the course was in his, uh, I think he was 78 at the time. He ended up doing his BA and finished when he was 82 or 83. Uh, he had been, uh, he had never seen action, but he was, he, he was in, he was in the armed forces about to mm. go over. And he said, from my perspective, that bomb prevented me from going over to the Pacific theater. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so he's a guy that lived it. Right. So here I am, this right. pipsqueak, you know, 35 years old or whatever I was at the time telling him, but you know, he actually, to his credit, he, he listened and he said, eh, you know, there's some, there's some truth there. And, and it may in some cases be a both and, yeah. Right you know but certainly um um the perception was that they were saving um, saving american lives by mm-hmm. doing that uh my view is that like you said that there were other ways of perhaps demonstrating the effectiveness of the mm-hmm. bomb um that could have you know obviated the the need to drop it on a city and and kill civilians uh but you know people it's again p- complexity right people say well why didn't they just do a Um, blockade, you know, that would have been more humane. Well, in the first world war, there's a, you know, there's a lot of new research coming out, including by a Laurier student who's very impressive, a young woman named uh, uh, Alice Cundy, um, who, you know, says that the blockade in world war one was not exactly a cakewalk. There were a lot of innocent children in in Germany that, uh, that died as a result of the blockade. So, you know, I think one of the myths we need to confront about war is that there's a humane way of, of, of waging war. Mm-hmm. Whether you get a bullet in the head or an injection or you're uh, vaporized by an atomic right, bomb, you're still dead. There's
0: sacrifice. There's yeah. people are going to die and you're going to
1: And one of the, the great best. myths is that there's surgical strikes, right? I mean, we, we hear that terminology all the time, right? We'll just, mm-hmm. just, we'll use a drone and, and, and none of our guys will get killed and we'll only kill the bad guys. Well, it doesn't work that way. Right. You know, it's like the old uh, Star Trek episode of, you you know, the original Star Trek. It's so cheesy, but I I love it. It's a product of the sixties, but there was actually an episode where they went to this planet and uh, they they were actually having a war uh, by computer and they would not actually fight. And they'd say, okay, uh, uh, you and and you two over there and her, you've been hit and you have to go to the vaporizer. And Kirk's like, no, nobody's going to the vaporizer. And, And he's saying, you've sanitized war. And he forces them to confront this idea, and maybe you know the horror of war is a is a kind of incentive
0: to, not to build do peace. It. Yeah, right. You know, it, it needs to be gory and graphic for you to realize. Exactly. I don't want this. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. So, I, I okay. So what I was even trying to maybe get at with my previous question, and I I hadn't qu- hadn't quite fully formed in my head yet, but I I guess what I was wondering is, you know, you've spent so much time, you know, you've I'm sure you've written written a bunch on, on this, these periods, what's, you know, I, like I, I even opened up saying, you know, are we headed for war? What's, what's, what's the key thing we can learn, or right, that maybe that you would want students to, to learn or people right now to learn from that period about our current moment. And I mean, I also, I guess want to remind you, I'm, I'm, if you got somewhere to be, you, you can, you could be quick with this answer, but I mean, if, if you want to even try to unpack a little bit <laughs> of the story of, of, of some right. of the th- those narratives you followed, I, I would be really interested to hear. So,
1: um, I think that's a a great question. Again, I know I've said that, but you've asked some really good ones. Um, and it's always a way <laughs> of buying time too, right? <laughs> As I try and think, I I think that um, yeah. So I mean, the things I want students to to get, uh, are numerous, and and one of them is complexity, right? Mm-hmm. Um. We have a tendency to want things to be neat and tidy, and I think history is messy. You know, right. uh, I'm always suspicious of these books that say the five reasons uh, that war is coming, or the seven reasons that you know the Roman Empire fell. No, it's not that. You know, the periodic table, everything's lined up and it's right. all so neat and tidy. No, 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 it's not that easy. I believe in complexity, um, and I believe uh, that we need to try and establish. Uh, what I, you know, what's called historical empathy in the sense, again, sometimes people are wrong, but I think we also need to understand um, the the factors on the ground at the time, as I gave the example, you know, living in Nazi Germany. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and then I think we, you know, we need again, maybe it has to do with humility, but it also has to do with how carefully we read things Again, the German history course, I think that's why I love teaching the German history because there are so many elemental things that, that come up in that course, right? The, you know, the role of the individual, um, you know, uh, dictatorship, all these things. Uh, but I used to use, um, I, I used to use a couple of books um, in the course. One was a, a, a book on the Holocaust called um, uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners by a, an author named Daniel Goldhagen. Mm. And, you um, the students would be mesmerized by that book and really, you know, really angry and and they they would be very angry at the Germans and they'd want to kind of, you know, call them to account. And then, you know, the next book I would use is a book by a man named uh, W.G. Sebald called On the Natural History of Destruction that talks about the Allied bombing campaign uh, late in the war against civilian targets. And suddenly they'd want okay, to string up the, uh, well, um, I mean, one of the things that the Allies did, especially a fellow named uh, Bomber Harris <laughs> in Britain, um, was he wanted to punish the Germans. And, and he felt that the, the best way to do, to kind of win the war would be to pound German cities like Dresden and Hamburg Jeez. into into rubble. And so uh, you read that, you know, Sebald is not an apologist for the, the Nazis by any means, but he describes the the horror of these carpet bombings, you know. Mm. Uh, they actually created like tornadoes from the, the heat of the incendiary bombs. And uh, I think it's important that if we're going to give full weight and, and try and understand the horror of what was done by the Germans, we also need to give equal opportunity to, to understand the horror that was done to Germans. I think if we, if we suppress that, then we're only giving, um, encouragement to neo-Nazis and people that say, see, it's, 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 the the answer is we're evil and and we're uniquely evil. And I don't think that's a good answer. Um, there's an example I like to, to cite in, in a couple of my courses, uh, Mm during the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann who was a, a high ranking uh, Nazi who helped plan the, the final solution uh, there were various witnesses and this one fellow you heard Daniel was a survivor of Auschwitz and when he it came time to confront to give his evidence and to confront Eichmann he fainted and afterwards they said you know the journalists gathered around him and they said you know what was it just the the evil of Eichmann and you know that that, that made you you just couldn't face it and he said, no, it wasn't that at all. He said, I looked at him and I thought, he is me. I could do this. And, I, and as a Christian, right away, we understand that, right? It's the fallenness of, of, yeah, of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot of people struggle with that. And I thought, what a what a fascinating thing to say. And I, and I think it's true. It's terrifying it, if the say. lesson is that the Germans are uniquely evil, I think that's the wrong lesson to take from the Shoah, yeah. right? And uh, so- um, yeah, so I, you know the German history is good that way because there's these elemental things that you can bring in mm-hmm. and, and get students to think yeah. about those things. Well, right?
0: and, and a weird thing about, I'm just thinking about our, kind of our current moment, is that like both of the term Nazi and Hitler have been co-opted to... I, I think basically just because we've totally thrown out our blatantly religious language, we, we needed something new in place of Satan and demons. Right. So now we have... We have Hitler and we have Nazis, and Nazis are the people who do the work of of Hitler. Mm-hmm. In the same way that demons are the ones who do the work of Satan. And Hitler, when when we use that name, it's like it, it doesn't even have to do with the historical figure. I know very very little about the historical Hitler. Mm. I who Hitler is to me when I hear that word is it's a it, it's a word that references the the character of pure malevolence and evil. Yeah. Right. And it's like people talk about like, oh, Trump is as bad as Hitler. And it's like, dude, I don't, I don't even think Trump, I don't even think Hitler is as bad as Hitler. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think we're like, <laughs> it's, we've totally lost something really probably important about that, that story yep. and, and that people group. And it's like, well, even I hear about like, there's almost a sort of national uh, identity hatred for, for like, like, I imagine it would suck to be a German right now, or trying to trying to come to terms with what it means to be a German in the, especially you know, in in years that were more more close to the events of, of World War Two. Like, I mean, now we're, we're a little bit further away from those from that moment, but like, yeah, if, if we just kind of have this, even like, the, the, if you look at a lot of like video games, they they have like Nazi zombies, or like it's like the the Nazi is the almost the archetypal character of evil, and it's mm. like those are my people how do you deal with that as as a as a german like you know yeah
1: well we we had a a close friend that, when i was a grad student who was uh, who was german and um it was kind of sad because it was almost like she felt that she needed to spit every time she said germany and the only time that she was allowed to be proud of germany was at the world cup which they regularly win of course right <laughs> and she would be shouting with joy but you know and and i think that's really dangerous because i think that suppresses the national feeling and and there's a resentment that could build. Right. And uh, so I do think that Germany is, um, is starting to, to be able to come back into the world and and play a, uh, a sensible role. And I think, you know, if you look at the um, Syrian uh, refugee crisis and, and also some of the things that have been going on around COVID, I think uh, Germany has come off quite well. You know and 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 when the United States seemed to be retreating from from playing a global role, uh, Germany was stepping in Now. there was nervousness, right? That people are like, "Oh, you know, re- remember the war, right? right? But I mean, Angela Merkel is a far cry. You know, Germany is a much more uh, responsible state now. Um, mm. They have their own struggles. I mean, they have neo-nazis that are uh, floating around. Uh, but they also have laws that have been established for a number of years mm-hmm. now. Uh, that are meant to deal with that and they mm-hmm. seem to be uh, they have the will to do that. you know and so that's the challenge.
0: So I have a, a story that's playing out in my head and I'm not sure if it's if it analogous at all to to what what re- like, you know what historically happened in Germany, but I'm I, I've talked to Evan a little bit about this too like so in in the moments you know preceding the Holocaust in the the kind of mass, genocide of Jews and the mass hatred by, I mean, I don't, I guess the Nazis, but probably even just sort of the common, Mm -hmm. like you said before, there's, there there was going to be the extremists and then there was the common people who just weren't going to rock the boat. But somehow Germany ended up in a place where Jews were scum. They were nothing but scum. And did they get there because of a legitimate problem or was it just Hitler wanted to point to somebody who was this, he wanted to have somebody to, like <laughs> i guess why why did they hate the Jews so much that's a really simple question i guess
1: right well i mean I mean Germany had some issues that that had to be dealt with, but I mean the idea that the Jews were responsible for all their ills was yeah that was just uh that was just you know misinformation
0: i mean so it, well I guess the question I'm having is is i the the little understanding I have about jews in germany or even just kind of the the classical character of the jew is that like they did well financially in a lot of situations and partially i guess in in some situations that had to do with a with a difference in religious um laws about about lending money and then so i I guess like i I can see how a a dynamic develops where somebody's doing really well Mm -hmm. and all the rest of us are kind of struggling at it and, and it's easy to point at the person who's who's really succeeding and say look at look at those guys they're oppressing me by having all of the wealth and i don't have all the wealth and so I, so i all the things that i'm struggling with about reality and all, all of the problems and there's probably plenty of other economic things that happened that caused maybe the common person in, in germany to struggle to have somebody they wanted to sort of scapegoat and throw all their problems at and and like i, I think it's it, it I'm, I'm not sure if there's a similar dynamic there to in, in a in a in the current moment being able to look at i don't know I, I see a lot of i've had this conversation several times with different people like who who maybe lean towards appreciating some of the stuff that socialist philosophy has to say and just lo- looking at like all these millionaires and looking at these people like like why do they have so much money and and why, why did their kids right. like look at these these guys who aren't, aren't even smart aren't even contributing anything and they're just getting all this money and like we need to take all their money and give it to give it to the people give it to everybody else right like right. it's it's easy for that dynamic to 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 develop to kind of end up wanting to blame everything, are, are like, you, you need to have somebody to point to and say they're the cause of the problem, or at least you want to for some reason, and then it's easy to, to look at whoever's succeeding. and and, and
1: Yeah, I, I would argue that, you know, that um, that's where the rule of complexity comes in, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to ascribe all your problems to one group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think to go to the point that you were raising contemporary, you know, the contemporary issue, I mean, um, there are a lot of people that are frustrated right now because the gap between the rich and the poor is is widening. It's not right. narrowing, and um, you know, just for an example, I mean, you, you've got people who've made you know billions of dollars during this this pandemic,
0: right? And that's <laughs> horrifying.
1: So, yeah, so so you know, uh, I think we are. I actually think that we've got a, a, a we've reached a time where. Um, something like a Tobin tax it's been called it's named after a particular economist who you know said that a uh, tax even a 0.01 percent on all financial transactions would could yield you know billions of dollars um, I, I think that you know the, when you've got wealthy people who who shelter their money offshore and don't pay taxes and in some cases brag right. about it um, you know, uh, I don't mind paying my taxes as long as everybody else is as well. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I do think there's an issue there. Um, but I don't think it's a, it's analogous entirely to what the Nazis were preaching. I mean, they're preaching a kind of racism. Um, I mean, there were some Jews that were quite wealthy and there were some Jews uh, who were not particularly mm-hmm. wealthy. What was surprising about Germany was that actually their their Jewish population was more well-integrated than some other European countries. I mean, if you'd asked a European person in 1900, where is there likely to be a kind of widespread persecution against Jews, mm-hmm. they might have said France, not Germany. Uh, and there were but a lot so of
0: why did why did people latch onto the to the narrative that like, well, like I, what even was the narrative that that, that that like why how how is it so easy for people to jump to that point where. I mean, maybe not that many people were behind that ideology, but like the idea that Jews are just—they're worth exterminating.
1: Yeah, I think I think there there was a whole suite of things that that you know, uh, part of what Hitler preached was that you know the the Germany had won the First World War and and they'd been stabbed in the back by politicians, uh, so that was not a reality uh, in the sense that. You know, they, they... We didn't lose the election, okay? Exactly. I, I wasn't <laughs> going to say it, but uh, I mean, it, and it's, you know, it's called the big lie, right? I mean, if you read Mein Kampf, which I've had students read in the past, yeah. I mean, he says a lie repeated often enough becomes truth. And, and that's the scary thing about what's just happened is that there are people that really believe that the election was fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And he started saying it before the election even happened. So, you know... Anyways, so there was that—the stab in the back, right? Uh, because Germany um, was actually in Allied territory at the end of the First World War. They were on the verge of collapse. They, I mean, the, and this is what uh, General Pershing, the leader of the American forces, said. You know, our big mistake was not marching uh, triumphant through Berlin to drive that point home. Mm. But they didn't do that
0: because it's—it's about so, the—it's uh, about the narrative that the people.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, there was that. And then, and then you know, um, France was quite um, keen to punish Germany after the war. And so that you have, uh, you know, the occupation of the Rhineland and you have a lot of German industry being crippled. And then in the 1920s, you have something called hyperinflation where, you know, you needed a wheelbarrow of, of marks to go buy your food. People wanted to be paid at noon rather than five because that five hours would, you know, carve in half your pay. I mean, just insanity, right? Think of wait, wait, we're,
0: wait. Slow down, slow down for a second, because yeah. that 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 all sounds like a crazy situation. It being, was. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing how did the like, break down the causality there for a second. So, well, the, the French.
1: Uh, well, so it's not just that the French, but um, so after the war, you know, there were some states that wanted to make sure that Germany didn't rise again, because France and Germany had already had a war in eighteen seventy, seventy one, right? That's how Germany unites as a, uh, as a result of the Franco-Prussian War. And then, of course, in World War I, they fought. And so the, the French felt that uh, they, I mean, they had suffered uh, greatly in terms of casualties, and they were afraid that Germany was going to uh, surpass them in terms of demography, like they would replenish quicker, and there'd be another war. So they really wanted to have some guarantees, including holding on to a chunk of German territory called the Rhineland. Okay. Uh, and then when Germany, you know, Germany didn't really pay all the reparations they were supposed to in the Treaty of Vers- Versailles, it, the terms were adjusted more than once to try and help them to pay. And some people, some historians believe that they really kind of played a game to try and pay as little as they could. Mm. But they also did suffer terribly because their their own bankers kind of uh, kept producing more money. And when you do that, of course, you end okay, up devaluing so they, your okay. own currency. And this led to the hyperinflation. So there, so there
0: were reparations that needed to be paid, and in order to pay them, they inflated their economy a, a huge amount. Yep. And then all the working class, all, all the people. So the middle
1: class was the way. I mean, because they had all their money in the banks. Farmers, for example, who yeah. had something real and tangible like chickens and pork, and, they did okay. Yeah, but it was the right. middle. It was the middle class, and so this so was that, a radicalizing so moment.
0: So, looking at that situation, I'm saying it's like so when when suddenly everybody who had all their faith in the state. When when the the floor gets pulled out from underneath them, they need somebody to say. Especially, it's easy to look at the people who are still doing well, yeah. especially the doing doing the best, who have the most money, and say, yep. "How come they have all the money?" Exactly,
1: and so I do think there are analogies there. I I was very reluctant to draw that analogy, to, you know, between Trump and because I think that the, the 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 cry of Nazism, as you kind of suggested, gets tossed around way too easily. Right? Mm-hmm. We talk about soup Nazis mm-hmm. or lawn Nazis, which mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. Develop, uh, uh devalues the term Nazi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are similarities. I think that that kind of um, resentment, the politics mm-hmm. of resentment, and then you know the the fabrication of of, of, of narratives that aren't really truthful. Right. Those are the well, things I see as similar.
0: The thing is that that once when there's resentment there and there's a there's a legitimate problem associated with it, you can't ignore that and just say that that's being you know that's being Hitlerian, right? Like if if the middle class is really struggling or if if whatever i mean l- looking at that moment in germany and said like a- after this war that i mean that's that's actually really helps me to kind of understand a little bit more that situation but like <laughs> these people are actually struggling yeah. they're they're all financially totally screwed yeah and who do they blame that on yeah. it's like how do you how do you deal with that exactly. you, you 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 almost well like this is interesting even i'm just kind of processing this as as i say it but my um my roommate in college, um, I went to this really kind of small and independent uh, Bible school in North Carolina, um, and both of us have some interest had some interesting experiences there. But he went on to go study at Wheaton Bible okay. College after yeah. that, and um, he got one of the most crazy. I think it's a, a Bachelor of Arts. Somehow he managed to get his like his project. He needed to graduate. He convinced the professor or whoever he needed to talk to to let him write a hardcore metal album as his project and it was on uh, I'm see if you could even pull it up to I, I think he he explains it somewhere exactly what what the credit is or, or how he managed to anyway he's a very creative guy anyways and is a good negotiator he figured <laughs> out <laughs> he figured out how to write write metal music as his as his university project um and and in that this album he did is called Ishmael. He kind of breaks down the difference, at least part of the difference he sees between, mm-hmm. you know, the two sons of, of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Interesting. Right. And, and he looks at their, the different narratives surrounding um, sort of freedom from sin is that, and I, I've got to try to follow this because I, I think the way, because, because, Islam, I think, really has an identity associated... Mm. They really associate with Ishmael in that story. It's yeah. like we're the sort of the rejected son or whatever. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm totally getting that right, but that's kind of what I understood from what he's talked to me yeah. about. And he's talked about how, you know, there's there's a difference between having... Well, he, he talks about this idea of a scapegoat. And and, and he has this really... I I think that... I forget which song it is. Um, he has a song talking about the difference between you know uh christ dying for our sins and being able to blame our sins on satan and it's like both of those are a form of redemption where one of them if we can blame everything on on somebody and and have a scapegoat that absolves us from our sins but it leads to a really bad place mm. but the other other version of redemption from sin is sort of taking responsibility for your sin and and dying along with christ or 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 yeah. entering into christ's death and it's like there's you know that's a, that's a much better path towards redemption, but the other one is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to stack up all the things that are wrong around you and, and, you know, and point to somebody and say, it's all their fault. And then, you exactly. know, and then they, they die for you. It's like, there's, there's a difference between saying all my sins are Jesus's fault. And that's why he had to die and saying, Jesus died for my sins. And somehow that teaches me how to die too.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the difference between, like we said, um,
0: did you, did you find that? Were you able to find his project? Yeah. I. The name of his uh, program was Integrated Disciplinary Areas, Musical Engineering, Plus Theology, Plus Ancient (laughs) Languages. Wow. (laughs) Like that is a mouthful. So he studied Islam and, wait, can you read that again? Interdisciplinary. Musical Engineering,
1: Theology, and Ancient Languages. Yeah. Yeah,
0: So, I mean, that's definitely not staying in your lane. (laughs) (laughs) I love guys like that. Sorry, I interrupted you. But. No,
1: I I have to probably get going too. Okay. But uh, I mean, we couldn't you know, to be continued. But yeah, um, I just think uh, it's the difference going back to uh, you know Bourdain when he looked at the people who were supporting Trump. <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. He he saw people that had some legitimate grievances, even though he didn't necessarily agree with the path that they took. Whereas it's really easy for us to say. You know, these are just uh, crazy people that are, you know you know what I mean? Uh, it, it's, um, when you have a situation like this arise, there's always something, there's always a, a certain degree of legitimacy. There's there's something that's not right. Right. And to just pass it off as, as a freak movement or, you know, uh, mass stupidity or something like that. I mean, there were people that made fun of Hitler, yeah. right? Charlie Chaplin made that movie, The Dictator. It's right. hilarious. Yeah. Well, a few years later, it wasn't so funny. You know, so I think we have to take these things as red flags and say, you know, what what's underlying these? What mm-hmm. what is um, prompting these kinds of reactions? Yeah, um,
0: it's yeah. see the human there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that sort of that uh, that complexity principle? Is that humans are complicated?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. It sounds it sounds like the kind of thing you might read on a self help book, but uh, <laughs>
0: I, 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 I I like self help books. So. <laughs> Good. Anyway, thank you so much for oh, I appreciate coming out it. today and it's fascinating ta- talk with me for a while. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe we could do it again.
1: Yeah, love like that.
0: All right. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here, and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.